a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I will tell you, before we get into this, that a lot of this material, a lot of what we're going to go through today, I have taught before. Um, It's been several years, but I did want to tell you that I am revisiting some of the the things that I've taught before, just in case any of my fans on the internet want to accuse me of laziness. Um, But I want to begin with a statement, is that you do not get to decide what God has said. And I don't intend this as a rebuke towards any of you. When you say it like that, it might sound like I'm accusing the body of putting words in God's mouth. But I'm not aware that any of you claim to receive revelations from God outside of the scriptures. And I'm not aware that any of you make a habit of abusing uh, what God has said in the scripture. But I want to work from here as a practical way of understanding what is one of the most important uh, tenets of our faith. That is that scripture is the first and highest authority. And I hesitate to say that it is the most important doctrine of our faith, not because there are more important doctrines than our doctrine of scripture, but because it occupies the same space as many other doctrines. Um, The doctrines of the gospel of grace, the doctrines of God, who he is and what he has done, they are equally and immeasurably important, just as our doctrine of scripture. Now, I'm careful to avoid saying that scripture is our only authority. Uh, James and I were talking about this last week. Um, He made the statement that Scripture is the only authority. And I said, no, it's not. We agree that, generally speaking, Scripture is not the only authority that we have and that we must submit to, right? I mean, we submit to the government in some sense. Um, We submit to our elders. We submit to uh, creeds and confessions insofar as they are true and faithful to the teaching of Scripture. But Scripture is the only authority in the sense that its command is unparalleled. Scripture does not share its authority with anyone, no person, no church, no creed, no confession has anything to say beyond what Scripture has said. This is the error of the Roman Catholic Church, isn't it? The arrogant Roman Church has erected for herself a false god. We call it the papacy, 
the office of the Pope. Rome asserts that the decrees of the church occupy the same space as Scripture. That is, just as God has said, let there be light, right? God decreed the creation of the world. In the same way that God has said, let there be light, Rome says, if anyone shall say that by faith alone the impious is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order unto the obtaining the grace of justification, that it is not in any respect necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So just as scripture has told us the truth of the gospel, Rome tells us that if you believe the truth of the gospel, let you be anathema. And this is not unique, right? As you know, Calvinist, Reformed Christians were aware of the context of Protestantism and the Protestant Reformation, right? Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church, rejecting the teaching of Rome. Unfortunately, the teaching of Rome lives on, both in Catholic churches and in Protestant churches. Right, Rome says that the will of man is an essential feature of moving God to save you. In the same way, the heresy of Arminianism maintains that the will of man is necessary for moving God to save you. And we see this error, this heresy taught in evangelical churches around the world, right? That you can pray a prayer, and as long as you can look to that prayer that you prayed, you can know that you are saved. But this all comes from putting authority on something other than Scripture, right? And so I want to establish with Scripture the authority of Scripture. And to do that, I'm going to examine the teachings of Paul and examine how did, how did Paul view his own authority. And to do that, I'm going to look at Paul's apostleship, right? There in Romans 1, Paul speaks of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So, in order to establish the authority of Paul's apostleship, we're going to review the nature of God's revelation to the church after the resurrection. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews 1, which I'm going to assert was written also by Paul, he writes, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
So first, we need to understand a distinction between God's revelation in the Old Testament before the incarnation of Christ and in the New Testament after the resurrection of Christ. Now, there is not a distinction in substance. The nature of God's revelation is the same through all eternity. But there is a distinction in method. There is a distinction in delivery. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there's a big section of it where all the books are names of people. These people were the great prophets of Israel. Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. And so we see in the Old Testament that God is always speaking to his people by speaking only to certain people. But we see here in Hebrews that this is no longer the case. Paul declares that God no longer speaks to individuals as prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we need to talk about what that means in order to understand Paul's place in all of this. So Paul asserts that God created the world through his son and that his son now speaks. He goes on to say he is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when I see Christ speaking, the creation of the world, the glory of God declared in one place, it takes my mind to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John is going to give us a little bit more understanding here and what it means for Christ to speak. He says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was in the beginning of with God. So we see here in John. 1 verse 3, that all things were made through Christ. And we see John present us with this word, the word of God. John tells us in verse 14 who the word is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word is Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory. We have seen the exact imprint of the Father's nature. So this word, the Son, the Christ, he is the one through whom God speaks. So now we want to look at how God speaks to us through Christ. To find that, we're going to go to the book of Acts. I'm going to read through the experience of Paul's conversion. Let's see. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read a pretty long section here. But Saul, I will tell you what one of my pet peeves is. I was playing Bible trivia with my family the other night, and the question was, what was Paul's name 
before he was converted? The answer to that question is Paul, also called Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name, named after the king of Israel, Saul. And Paul, or Paulos, is his Greek name. Saul, Paul, same person, no name change. Anyway, Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So there's a lot there. And so we're going to hit the important points and then focus on one in particular. So we see Paul, also called Saul, is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul was a murderer. He murdered the people of God. He had letters from the government saying, yes, that's cool. You can do that. He murdered Christ's sheep and he hated Christ. I always think it's funny that you know people talk about Paul or any any person as a great hero of the faith. I want to be like Paul. Paul himself admitted that he was the chief of sinners. So Paul's on his way to kill God's people because it was his job and he was good at it. And then this light shines from heaven and he falls to the ground. And a voice cried out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Paul's blind. The men who are with him take him into Damascus. And the Lord says to Ananias that Paul, this murderer, is a chosen instrument to carry the name of of Christ before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. 
Now, one more thing we have to do to establish Paul's authority as an apostle. So first we see that God no longer speaks through individual prophets. He speaks through his son, Jesus Christ, the living word, the radiance of the glory of God become flesh. And we see that this Christ declares that Paul is his chosen instrument. And then finally, from Paul's words to a man named Timothy, we see the last piece here. 2 Timothy 3, chapter 16, Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God. Paul not only writes as one appointed by God to do so, but Paul's words here in Scripture are breathed out by God. These words have the same authority as if they had been spoken to us directly from heaven because God has spoken them through his Son, the Christ, and Christ's instrument, Paul. Now, We mentioned earlier that we would outline a distinction between the revelation before and after Christ. So we've explained the nature of revelation post-resurrection, but this distinction might not be apparent. We said that in the Old Testament, God spoke through specifically appointed men. Then we saw that Paul was specifically appointed to speak for God. What's the difference? Obviously, in Hebrews 1, Paul draws a contrast between the instruments of God's revelation in these former days and the instruments of God's revelation in these last days. And in both cases, the pure words of God are delivered through the pens of sinful men. Indeed, everyone who wrote the Bible is just as sinful as you and I. And while we have drawn a connection between the revelation of Christ described in Hebrews and the written word of God given to us by Paul, we want to understand the difference between this and the prophets despite this symmetry. The difference is Christ. We see in the Old Testament that we do not see the fullness of the gospel of grace revealed. In Hebrews 10, we see, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, And burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So the difference between the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation is the full revelation of the gospel of Christ. As Jesus breathes his last breath, in Matthew 27, we see that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. This curtain in the temple separated the people of God from the Holy of Holies. It separated the people of God from the chief priests who had to go through all this ritual and ceremony before they could enter. This curtain was torn in two because there are no more shadows. Moses saw Christ as though through a veil. He had faith in a promise, but he did not have the full knowledge of the fulfillment of that promise. We do. We see the radiance of the glory of God in Christ revealed in Scripture. We see the fulfillment of the promise given to Israel in the death of Christ. There are no more shadows. The full radiance of the glory of God is revealed perfectly in Jesus Christ as he has given it to us in his word. So that is the authority that Paul writes with. And because of that authority, you do not get to decide what God has said. And so I want to explore some of the ways we use Scripture. Because Scripture has explained to us what it's good for. Scripture tells us how it can and should be used. Um, and I'm going to situate this in the context of uh, elders and what their duties are, what their qualifications are, because every Lord's Day, one of your elders or myself, an elder in training, stands before you and teaches you Scripture. We stand here and we read Scripture and we explain Scripture to you. And so it is important to have an understanding of what Scripture says about itself and how it is to be handled. And so our first and highest authority is this word of God. Now remember I said scripture is not the only authority, right? The elder has some measure of authority over the church. But the elder is himself in submission to scripture, and the first and greatest task for the elder then is his duty to scripture. And so we begin with Paul's declaration of the authority and application of Scripture. He writes in 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I'm going to explain this in the context of elders, but this is broadly applicable to all of us, right? We all need to understand how to use Scripture, how to read Scripture. So the, the elder's duty to God, the elder's duty to church, is 
his duty to Scripture. Now, Paul has told us exactly what Scripture's utility is. The duties of the elder, our duties to Scripture as the people of the church, they are found in applying these utilities. And so, there are four things that Paul tells us here in 2 Timothy 3. And they're represented by two dichotomies, right? We have doctrinal instruction, and on the other side, we have practical instruction. And then we also have positive instruction and negative instruction. And so with these distinctions, we're going to look at these four tasks given to the people of God in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We have teaching, which is positive doctrinal. We have correcting, which is negative doctrinal. We have training, which is positive practical and reproof, negative, practical. And there's going to be some overlap here. And so the first thing I want to address here is this positive doctrinal teaching. This entails the stating and the proving and the defending of propositions which are true. Okay, This is where I say to you, you should believe this thing because Scripture says this thing. Much of the New Testament is concerned primarily with teaching. And it might be the most significant of these four uses for Scripture because this is the use which contains the propositions that are the gospel, right? Believe in Christ. Believe in who Christ is and what he has done. And since our salvation is not of works, it is only by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, these positive teachings of the word will contain all those things necessary for salvation to everyone who believes. The significance of teaching gospel truth is emphasized by Paul in Romans 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this teaching of the word of God is powerful, right? God says that the way I save my people is through the gospel. This gospel is the power of God for salvation. So I immediately think of one of the objections to the gospel leveled by false teachers, right? If your salvation is predestined, if everyone who is going to be saved is elected by God, why do we need to evangelize? Why do we need to do anything if God's just going to handle it all for us? Well, because God told us how he's going to handle that. And that is through the teaching of the gospel of Christ. The way in which God saves his people is through the teaching of the gospel of Christ. And so it is the responsibility of the elders, and it is our duty as the people of God, to engage in some way with 
evangelistic ministry. If we were to understand that this gospel is the power of God, that this is the only way that God has established the salvation of his people, then we should be collectively engaged in some way with the sharing, this sharing of this truth of the gospel. And this does not mean that you should go out there and stand on the corner of 280 and 301. Someone might be called and qualified to do that, but not everyone is. But in some way, everyone is called and commanded to express this gospel, to share this gospel. And all of God's people need to be constantly reminded of the basic truth of this gospel. We should constantly reflect on Christ's work on the cross. Because it is in, it is in Christ alone that we have salvation. And it is in Christ alone that we have hope. And in him we have our righteousness, which is Christ's. I think of a, there's a very old uh, church father named St. Francis. He is often misquoted as saying something silly like, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. The words are always necessary. Right, because salvation is through the declaration, the proclamation of this gospel And in silence, you cannot tell someone that Christ died for his people. In silence, you cannot tell someone that God was propitiated by Christ on the cross. You can only say that with words. Now, this positive doctrinal teaching has another purpose. Apart from the simple truth of the gospel of Christ, there are other things which are good and necessary for the continued faith of God's people. Right? Paul says in Hebrews 6 that we must teach people to leave the element doc elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Once a person is saved, once a person is regenerated and gifted faith in the gospel of Christ, there are other things that they should learn. There are other things that they need to know. And so it is the responsibility of the elder to teach these things and encourage the sheep to search and study the scripture to learn these things. It is the responsibility of each of us to share with one another what we learn from the word of God. Paul gives a simple, clear command to Titus, a pastor on Crete, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the doctrine taught must be consistent with the sound doctrine of the scripture. Paul tells Timothy and Titus that overseers or elders must be able to teach and able to give instruction in sound doctrine. It's not just that 
you'd be a good orator, that you'd be able to come up here and motivate you guys with some fancy hand-waving and some convincing philosophies, sweet-sounding words. But we must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The elder must be a theologian, which might have some stigma, right? We think of theologians as being these lofty, intelligent, academic thinkers. One such theologian made the claim that everyone is a theologian, and he's right. Everyone has a doctrine of God. But the elder in particular must know the word. He must know the scripture. He must know who God is and what he has done. And he must know these deeper things, these further instructions from scripture that are not themselves the gospel so that he can instruct you on these things. On the other side of this, we have correction. We have positive doctrinal teaching, and we have negative doctrinal correction. Correction is instruction against what is false. I did this earlier when I talked about the false gospel of Rome and the false gospel of evangelical churches. Now, I will tell you that correction needs to be second place to this positive doctrinal teaching. Because it does no good for me to tell you what is wrong if you don't know what is right. I must establish first what is correct, what is true, what is taught in Scripture, because it is from there that we apply that knowledge to understand what is false. We recognize what is false by knowing first what is true. If the positive doctrinal instruction is, instruction is done thoroughly and correctly, you'll be equipped to defend yourselves against most errors. One author said, The theologian's task is not to divert the ears with chatter, but to strengthen consciences by teaching things true, sure, and profitable. But still, errors come up in the assembly from time to time, right? One of us gets an idea. We think it's really cool. We tell our friends. We tell our brothers and sisters. And it is the responsibility of the overseer, and it is the responsibility of all of us to correct these errors according to sound doctrine when we hear them. Paul writes to Titus, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. So among the church in Crete, there were many who did not submit to the authority of the apostles' teaching. They were empty talkers and deceivers. These were men who spoke and taught a vain 
gospel, a gospel of works, a gospel that looks to the will of man to move God. Paul would say in Galatians that there were people in the churches who were turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. They taught a powerless gospel and they deceived the people of God. And Paul calls out specifically this circumcision party. And so we can assume that there are people in Crete who share these same ideas as the people in Galatia who spoke about circumcision being in some way necessary for salvation. So in Romans 2, we have a a good example of this negative doctrinal correction. Paul says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, which is you, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically circumcised or physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For one who is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and for one for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. <clears throat> so Paul is teaching against this Jewish practice of circumcision within the broader theological context that Jews and Gentiles are all condemned. Christ has fulfilled the righteousness of God and been put forward as the satisfaction of God's wrath for all who believe. And so we should follow the apostles' example when we make Correction. Paul does not simply condemn the circumcision party. He does it within the context of a more important truth, the truth of the gospel, which the circumcision party is undermining by their teaching. So this correction should always come with the context of the truth, the positive teaching. Paul describes these false teachers in more color in 1 Timothy. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False teaching in the church produces among God's people envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. These have no place among the body of Christ. For that reason, they must be silenced. Paul leaves us with an instruction in graciousness towards false teachers. He's gracious, and then he leaves them to condemnation. Paul tells Titus, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And really, we see here that Paul is more strict with church discipline in matters of teaching than Jesus is with matters of general sin in Matthew 18. But why? Right? We see in the general instruction of church discipline in Matthew 18 that first, if your brother has sinned against you, you go to him. And you tell him, and if he repents, you have gained your brother. And if he does not, you bring two or three of the brothers with you. And if he then does not repent, you bring him before the church. And if he then does not repent, he is to be expelled from the fellowship of God's people. But we see here with Paul giving instruction on false teaching, he says, warn them once and twice and then have nothing to do with them. It is often the case that while one person partakes of grievous sin, that the rest of the assembly sees it as sin and is not led astray by the sin, right? If one of you engages in one of these sins that we think of as being so heinous, the rest of us are going to see that and be like, yeah, that's bad. We're not going to be convinced that Murder is good because our brother murdered someone. But, as Paul teaches here and to the Galatians, sheep are easily led astray by false teaching. So the apostle gives us a command to be more strict when it comes to disciplining false teachers within the assembly. If they continue to teach falsely, they are to be cast out. There's something else I want to talk about here while we're talking about correction. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 14, he says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. One of my, sort of my mottos when it comes to dealing with false teaching is that words are not heresies. Heresies are heresies. And so when your brother or sister uses a word or phrase in place of something, we ask them what they mean. We don't assume, right? You cannot be a heretic because you have chosen one word to refer to a doctrine if that doctrine is true, right? And so as we talk about the words that we use to refer to doctrines, we can talk about what is wise and what is helpful. We can agree that certain words are good and helpful in certain contexts and that others are not good and not helpful in certain contexts. But if your brother believes the truth and you just don't agree with the word he uses for it, you cannot condemn him for the use of that word. 
And this is what Paul is talking about here. Don't quarrel about words. It does no good. It ruins those who listen to it. Instead, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. So I'm going to pause there for this week. Um, I'm going to be teaching again next week. So we will wrap up this examination of 2 Timothy 3 next week. But I want to leave you with an encouragement. Continue to read the word. Continue to search the scripture. But don't do so alone. Don't do it by yourself. Do it with your brothers and sisters. Do it with your family. As we do this together, we learn together and we can build one another up as we study the scripture together. And next week we will get into practical teaching. How do we handle the instructions of Scripture when it comes to what should you do about this? What are you supposed to be doing? What are you not supposed to be doing? We will examine some of the errors that come with that, and we will examine the, uh, the position that works has for us. Right, because we said at the beginning that you know, Rome says that you've got to have some works. You have to examine your works and decide if they're good enough, which is not true. But there is some sense in which Scripture gives us commands, gives us assignments, things to do. So we'll, we'll look at that next week. Um, I will pray and then we will take the Lord's table. God, we thank you for your word that in it we can see the radiance of your glory. That we can look upon Christ through the words of your disciples. And that by this word alone, we can know that we have salvation. God, we thank you for the work of your son. That you saw fit to accept his death in place of ours. And God, bless us as we remember that, as we partake of this little wafer and little drop of juice.
We pray these things in the name of Christ.